Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Support for Prop G comes from Anthropic. Incorporating AI into your business can be a delicate balance between speed and intelligence. That's why you might want to consider the Claude 3 family models from Anthropic for your enterprise AI. Haiku is their light and fast model. Opus is their most powerful model capable of high-order thinking, and Sonnet is the best combination of both speed and intelligence. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. Episode 72, The Atomic Number of Hafnium, 1972, The Godfather, my favorite film of all time. What do I do to celebrate it every day? When I go into Starbucks, I ask for an Al Pacino. You know, you might consider taking a course in business administration just to be on the safe side. Okay. Okay, I need to, I need to do better. I hear that. Go, go, go! Welcome to the 72nd episode of the Prop G Show. In today's episode, we speak with Brad Stone, the senior executive editor for global technology at Bloomberg News and author of four books, including his latest, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. I'm a big fan of Brad. I think he's a great journalist. I like his books. Seems like a good guy. Just, just like Brad. I like him. I like him. Megusto Bradley. We discussed with Brad everything about Amazon, including how the company has transformed under Jeff Bezos's leadership and the existential threats coming for its market dominance. What's happening? What's on our mind? Today, we're talking about the MeWork generation, or more specifically, a new class of billionaires who make their fortunes while losing other people's money. Full disclosure, full disclosure, I might qualify for that. Um, looking in the mirror, looking in the mirror, man in the mirror test, the most stressful times in my life, in my life have been when people believed in me and invested tens, if not hundreds of millions in my company or idea, only to see their capital go up in smoke. I find that it's actually easier to lose my own capital than other people's because it's a private failure. Um, I think you have to be a bit of a sociopath to be a great investor or a great operator because you might be losing other people's money or you might be uh, forced to lay off people and you need to be able to sleep really well so that you can perform at a high level. And sometimes I've always thought I'm not a great investor, uh, at least not a great money manager because I have I have a much easier time managing my own money and taking risks with it than I do other people. Anyways, to understand, but thank you, doctor. Thank you. Uh, so to understand the MeWork generation and to identify this class of billionaires, we've devised two metrics, the daily Benjamin burn rate and the earn to burn ratio. The daily Benjamin burn is how much money an executive lit on fire per day during their tenure. Well, the earn to burn ratio is the percentage of those lost Benjamins, they siphoned off for themselves. Think of it as a commission on destruction or destruction commission. And I think that is what 
is sort of really rankling people or what's new about our economy. It used to be that people would get outraged when the chairman or the CEO of a company, Mickey Drexler, made over a billion dollars at The Gap. He took a company that was selling records and Levi's and transformed it into a specialty retail juggernaut because of his ability to create voice with product, the merchant prints. And I think most people are fine with Mickey Drexler being a billionaire because he created tens of billions in shareholder value. What I don't think they're fine with and what I think um, might indicate an underlying sickness in our economy is that there seem to be people who have figured out a way to make billions of dollars despite destroying shareholder value. So let's go back to our initial Benjamin Byrne. What does that look like? A lot like Quibi. That likely won't mean anything to you unless you're one of the dozens and dozens of people who subscribe to the short-lived short video service. For context, back in 2018, Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman raised around $1.8 billion, launched a bad app with even worse content, only to shut it down six months later. Roku then combed through the rubble and found about $100 million in value. So Jeff and Meg immolated $1.7 billion in 750 days, or a daily Benjamin burn rate of approximately two point. $2 million. So they lit on fire $2.2 million per day. If you'd stacked that total $1.7 billion in $100 bills, you'd have a pile, get this, over a mile high. That's about two uh, Burj Khalifas. Am I saying that right? There's something about my brain that's died around names and accents. Is it the Il Burj Khalifa? Anyways, the world's tallest building. I stayed in the Armani Hotel, rolled in Dubai, into Dubai on my way to Africa, stayed there. It was incredible. Uh, I would describe Dubai as a fantastic place to visit. It feels a little bit like Las Vegas minus the charm, but I love Las Vegas. Even a charmless Vegas works for me. Anyway, Jeff and Meg aren't the only ones burning Benjamins. Like I mentioned at the top, I'm a part of this class too, or at least the DBB class. In 2008 or 2008, I raised $600 million from a hedge fund, became the largest shareholder in the New York Times company, ran an activist campaign against the paper, went on the board to unlock value. The dog's going to unlock some value. They put me on the board where I ranted about the evils of Google, advocated for the divestiture of non-core assets. The New York Times owned the seventh largest building in America and 17% of the Boston Red Sox and about.com. Yeah, that made a lot of sense. Envisioned sunlit uplands of subscription revenue. And then with my amazing strategy went on to, you guessed it, Light Benjamin's on fire during my 24-month tour of duty watching the Great Recession kick ad-supported media in the groin over and over. I managed to turn $600 million into $350 million for a daily Benjamin burn of about $350,000 a day. And I literally felt each one of those dollars coming out of my soul. The stack of Benjamin's I lost, get this, would have reached only to the top of 30 Rockefeller Plaza. That's right. I burnt enough capital or destroyed enough capital in my two-year adventure at the New York Times to stack $100 bills that would reach the top of 30 rock. Jeff, Meg, and I, however, made an old-school mistake. We failed to find a greater fool, such as the public markets, gullible board members, or SoftBank, to secure a mega payout for our bonfire of the Benjamins. I didn't make that much money. I was paid approximately, I think, about half a million bucks in board fees and retainer from the fund. And I speculate that Jeff and Meg may have pocketed more, but none of us made millions. That brings us to the earn to burn ratio. And I think that's what is pissing people off and signals something more insidious in our economy. And that is the Hall of Fame for broken compensation. In 2012, Yahoo replaced its CEO with an executive from Google, Marissa Mayer. But the new CEO made a series of poor decisions, 
Ms. Mayor, including canceling the company's telecommuting policy while working from home herself and paying $1.1 billion for Tumblr, which they sold six years later for $3 million. By the way, I don't care what anyone says, Tumblr was a porn site. And the moment they decided to close down the porn, the site basically lost about a third of its traffic. When Mayer took over Yahoo, not including the 20% ownership stake in Alibaba, it was valued at $14.4 billion. In July 2016, the company sold itself to Verizon for $4.5 billion, and Mayer was gone. That's about $10 billion turned to ash in just four years, or 13 and a half Burj Khalifa's for a daily Benjamin burn of $6.8 million. So that's right up there in the daily, the DBB. But what's really ugly about it is Mayor's compensation began with a $30 million signing bonus and went up from there, totaling an estimated $365 million. That's right, a third of a billion dollars or a quarter of a million dollars per day commission for destroying $7 million per day of other people's money. That's an earn-to-burn ratio of 3.7%. However, however, and that's shocking, but it's not the gold standard. Adam Newman founded WeWork in 2010, but he didn't start burning Benjamins at epic scale until SoftBank began shoveling billions into the WeWork furnace in August of 2017. By the time Newman was fired in September 2019, SoftBank had invested $10.3 billion. A few months later, it wrote off over $9 billion of that. That's a 13.1 million daily Benjamin burn rate on SoftBank's money alone. Newman's compensation for this value destruction was complicated by his ouster in a subsequent lawsuit, but we estimate he made off with around a billion dollars, most of it coming out of SoftBank's deep pockets who wanted to save faces. I think Adam Newman basically threatened to sell it to creditors, and so Massa stepped in and said, I'll pay you whatever you want. That's $1.5 million per day during those two years, an earn-to-burn ratio of 11%. That's our Hall of Fame here. It's people who, a guy who basically got a $1 billion commission on losing $10 billion of other people's money. So to be clear, this doesn't just happen in the U.S. In 1998, Daimler-Benz acquired Chrysler for $35 billion in the largest industrial merger ever at the time. After nine years of culture clash and billions in losses, K-Car, S-Class, I don't see it. Daimler unloaded 80% of Chrysler to a private equity firm for $7.5 billion, valuing the company at $9.25 billion. That equates to an impressive $7.8 million daily Benjamin burn. All right. In sum, what's the learning here? Why should we be cognizant of the me work generation, whether we're executives, parents, or citizens? I believe, I believe we need to ask ourselves, have our interests diverged from those of the people who matter most to us in society? It's one thing to make billions when you've created tens of billions for other people. It's one thing to have a wonderful, indulgent lifestyle if you're providing that lifestyle. It's one thing to have a wonderful life when you are improving the lives of other people. But ask ourselves, do our spouses, children, neighbors, employees, and countrymen win and lose in reasonable harmony? Are we part of a family, part of a nation, or have we become the me work generation? I go to a childhood uh, story or experience. And that is my father used to get ready for business trips. Uh, he would lay over his Ram golf bag, his beautiful uh, Izod sweaters. And then he would meticulously iron the oversized collar on his Pierre Cardin shirts, silk shirts, and then wrap them delicately around a piece of wax paper and place them in his Hartman luggage as if they were newborns. And I distinctly remember the smell. My dad wore aqua velva. And my, I always thought of my dad as very masculine and elegant. I really looked up to him as a lot of young, as a lot of sons do. And I remember specifically on this one occasion, my mom walked into the room and I looked up at her and I said, 
mom, how come dad is so rich and we're so poor? And my, my dad tells this story and just bursts out laughing. But here's the thing. It wasn't funny and nor is it funny now. And that is when you're in a relationship and you're a dad or you're a mom, you know, are you living a different life than them? Are you living a better life than them? Struggles and success are fine, but they should be in the agency and somewhat in harmony with other people. The thing that when I look back on my childhood and some of the issues I've had uh, with my dad, it's not that we weren't doing well. It's not that he was a bad person. It's just that there were two Americas under one household, under one roof. Stay with us. We'll be right back for our conversation with Brad Stone. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. Here's our conversation with Brad Stone, the senior executive editor for global technology at Bloomberg News and author of Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos, and the invention of a global empire. Brad, where does this podcast find you? Hi, Scott. I am in my garage in Mill Valley, California. This is where I wrote the book. This is where I quarantined during the pandemic. And then this is where I'm talking to you right now. Nice. So, uh, you are milking this whole Amazon train. So we had the Everything <laughs> Store, which was, I remember reading that book. And I, when I wrote my book, The Four, and I had to write a chapter on Amazon, I remember thinking, oh, no, how am I going to, what am I going to say that Brad Stone hasn't already said about Amazon? What, uh, since writing that book and then Amazon Unbound, Django Unchained, what, what has changed in your mind most about Amazon and Jeff Bezos? It's been a transformation of both the company and the guy. And 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 the, the guy has transformed right in front of our eyes, right? He's gotten all jacked. He uh, um, got divorced. He, he has a, a very uh, publicly prominent new partner in Lauren Sanchez. He's the owner of the Washington Post and competing with Elon for space domination. And now, now he's retiring as CEO of Amazon. But 
what what drew me to the story or to the idea of a sequel was simply the evolution of the company. You know, in the Everything Store, I write about the Kindle, and this was now the Alexa company. Um, the marketplace had gone global; it had gone Hollywood. Um, they had initiated a couple of projects with groceries, hadn't quite gotten it right, and then bought Whole Foods, spawned a whole transportation division. So, um, look, I didn't think Scott that I would be going back to the same terrain. But it was only mm-hmm. because the business the the business story was so good, and that I really thought it it uh, deserved a sequel. So, I, I'm not sure I entirely understand went down what went down with his amateur photography and MBS <laughs> and the detectives. Like, uh, wh- how did that all play out? Who was more involved than we thought? Less involved? Did it, it did it really involve? intrigue from overseas where they were trying to gain leverage against the owner of the Washington Post. What give us your your 30,000 foot view of what went down there? So if people remember that saga, they probably remember a couple of overlapping truths, right? There was mm-hmm. there a brother involved, Lauren Sanchez's brother, Michael Sanchez, who sold their their text messages and photographs to the Inquirer. And then, of course, there was an insinuation that the Saudis were involved and maybe MBS had hacked Bezos's phone and was a Trump world. They obviously had a lot of animosity for Bezos because of his ownership of the Washington Post. So they disentangled it. Um, as I as I talked to everyone I could, as I explored the the legal documents in the in the case that the Southern District of New York was considering bringing uh, in the whole episode, and the FBI looked into it, the the underlying truth, and my conclusion was that Michael Sanchez delivered the whole kit and caboodle to the editors of the National Enquirer mm-hmm. in late 2018. And that there might have been good reason for Bezos and for his representatives to suggest a more complicated truth involving Trump world or involving the Saudis. Certainly, MBS was no fan of Bezos and the Washington Post. There were Saudi Twitter bot armies that were tweeting against him. And certainly, Donald Trump hated Bezos uh, because of the Post coverage. But none of that, there's no evidence that any of that had anything to do with the tabloid newspaper's pursuit of Bezos's relationship. That's where I netted out. I think yeah. if we were ever to find out otherwise, it would actually contradict most of the evidence that was ultimately gathered by the FBI and entered into, into evidence in the Southern District of New York, which really showed the editors and reporters at the Inquirer getting the information from Michael Sanchez. So was this, uh, in my view, the kind of the ultimate choreography gymnastics in the world of PR, in the history of PR, was a married man with four kids who's the CEO of arguably one of the most digitally disruptive companies in history. This guy understands technology. He understands that pictures that are pixelated can be forwarded. (laughs) And he decides to send dick pics to his girlfriend and then they get discovered and he becomes a hero. Do you think it was manufactured or do you think that as part of the narrative and to, to huge excess? Because what I think about, there was all these implications that it was political intrigue with Trump right. and, and MBS and Bezos would not take this. If he couldn't fight back, who would? He was standing up for all of us. And then it just died, mm-hmm. right? They just let it go. Do you think that this was crafted in a in a public relations room right. with Bezos saying, how do I come out of this looking better than I went into it? I don't know that it was wholly manufactured or totally disingenuous. 
I, as I said, I think in February of 2019 that Bezos had good there. I mean, this is the absurdity of this whole situation and the absurdity of the four years of Donald Trump. Bezos had good reason to believe that this was Trump world. I mean, mm-hmm. AMI had been doing the dirty business for Donald Trump, uh, you know, with Michael Cohen's involvement, as we as we now know. And, you know, MBS had killed a Washington Post columnist and was Mm -hmm. trying to seek retribution against the Washington Post. So I don't know that it was wholly disingenuous. I do think it was opportunistic. I do think Mm -hmm. it was handy for Bezos to come out and to say that the National Enquirer is trying to embarrass him because of his his bold, brave work owning the Washington Post and uncovering, you know, uncovering the Trump administration and uncovering, you know, the murderous uh, record of of the of the Saudi crown prince. Um, There wasn't much evidence there to support it. Obviously, later they did some forensics on Bezos's phone. And this is disputed in cybersecurity circles, but Mm -hmm. at least a preliminary report showed that it might have been hacked by the Saudis. We've never gotten any proof of that. And then, and then, by the way, Scott, there there is the fact that, and this really takes us down a rabbit hole, but the National Enquirer in its negotiations with Bezos and his representatives really was sort of extorting him and trying to get him and his, yeah. his representatives the, the to drop. Yeah, really gross. Yeah. yeah, to drop this insinuation. Now, it turns out that they were in a non-prosecution agreement with the Southern District of New York, and it was kind of radioactive for them to, to even be accused of colluding with the Trump administration. And, and there's all sorts of additional complexities, like you mentioned, a, a below-the-belt selfie, which, by the way, really didn't exist, which is a, a little thing that I discovered in my what? book. Mike, Yeah, Michael Sanchez. No dick pic? There is no dick pic. Michael Sanchez what? had gone to a, a, a pornographic escort website and taken an anonymous photograph and given it to the Inquirer and passed it off as Bezos, a Bezos personal pick, and they thought that they had something that incriminating. Now he had given them other photographs that which were authentic, but nothing that explicit. Uh, but in I fact, did not know that. Yes. So well, there are. So the bottom line is Bezos, his big head and the twins are not out there uh, in terms of photographs. I thought that they were out there. I thought he had taken pictures and forwarded them. I did not know that. Um, Michael Sanchez's duplicity in this regard was multifaceted, and the editors of the Inquirer were, were hounding him to deliver the goods, so to speak. He had given them other photographs, which are you know pretty intimate, but nothing explicit. And he, he brought a... Um, a, a screenshot uh, to a, to a meeting with a National Enquirer reporter, but the editors from the Enquirer FaceTiming, and he showed them something that was something totally different. And so they thought they had it, and Bezos might have thought that they had it as well. Right. So I want to put forward a, um, a thesis that I was fascinated, this guy, Cory Doctorow, uh, author, journalist, activist, and his latest book is Attack Surface, kind of a cool name. Anyways, he put out a, a kind of a tweet storm that really got me thinking. And of course, I'm always looking for uh, points of light around how these companies need to be broken up and they're too powerful. But there's a general consensus that Amazon is great for consumers, that it's deflationary, that when you shop at Amazon, it's like getting a promotion, you save money, right? And his viewpoint, and he put it, I said, look, if you want to sell anything online, you got to sell on Amazon. That's one out of two dollars. If you want to sell on Amazon, it's kind of this deal with the devil where you have to sign up for their fulfillment. You have to sign up for their 
If you want to be listed in their search engine, you have to advertise with them and spend money. And slowly but surely, you end up paying 30, 40, 45 cents on the dollar to Amazon. And then here's the kicker. You're not allowed to sell your products for less anywhere else on the web. So if you end up paying this inordinate tax to work with Amazon, which you then have to pass through to the end consumer, and you can never sell your products for less on another platform that, say, isn't charging you these exorbitant fees, that in fact... Amazon is bad for the consumer and inflationary. Do you buy into that that line of reasoning? I mean, this is actually the substance of Carl Racine's uh, lawsuit, the the Attorney General of of Washington D.C., um, which he filed in in May. Um, mm-hmm. The European Union has looked into this. The, these are the so called most favored nation clauses that most retailers have. Certainly, Walmart uh, and Target are going to have them, stipulating that a seller, you know, can't. Uh, a list for less elsewhere. And, and the difference online is that all these companies have their their uh, pricing bots trained on each other. <laughs> so mm-hmm. they, they know exactly when a price is, is lower elsewhere. And then Amazon will just rip you out of search results. Um, I, I agree with everything. I think that that's probably a productive line of inquiry uh, for, for uh, regulators and lawmakers, except for one thing, which is that you have to sell on Amazon. And Scott, as we know, right, the, the internet, on the internet, competition is always a click away. Um, you know, it's, it's maybe an exaggeration to say that there are any platforms that are anywhere near as powerful as Amazon's, but mm-hmm. over the past five years, the greatest story in, in tech and in business has been Shopify. Walmart and Target have made some promising inroads on, uh, in terms of creating other marketplaces. So, I think that's that's where the regulators are going to have a challenge, showing that um, you know this most favored nation clause, which is pretty common in retail, is improper when Amazon does it because Amazon is a monopoly. Well, Amazon mm-hmm. has great market share, maybe fifty percent of all e-commerce, but it would be a misnomer to say that there are no alternatives. I think I think there are. So let's talk a little bit that, about that threat. If you look at the biggest retailers, I remember when they looked at the advertisers from when Tom Brady was first in the Super Bowl, the advertisers were AOL and Sears. I mean, it's just amazing how much things have changed. And I think I read somewhere nine of the 10 biggest retailers um, or eight of the 10 biggest retailers have, have have changed over in the last 20 or 30 years. I think it's still Walmart and I think Target's still on it or maybe Home Depot, but the rest have just swapped out, JCPenney's and Sears. So generally speaking, everything everywhere ends. What What are the existential threats to Amazon. You talked about Shopify. Is that number one? If you were to- No, no. I mean, because Shopify has had tremendous success, but the Amazon juggernaut has not slowed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, I I do think maybe we could generalize it a little bit and say Amazon serves so many constituencies now that it can't possibly please them all. And there Mm -hmm. are likely to be ways for for upstarts to make inroads and shopify is a great illustration um but there's a regulatory challenge for sure and just the distraction that'll come with all that uh regulatory attention i think a stagnating stock price is is going to be a big concern to amazon because you know this is a 1.7 trillion dollar company right now and hiring technologists and artificial intelligence scientists is all, you know, compensate the compensation is so stock heavy at, at Amazon. So continuing to attract people if that, or, and retain executives, mm-hmm. if that stock price starts to slow down, I think could be a mm-hmm. big challenge. And without Bezos there at the helm, Jassy might be, you know, a little less inspirational in terms of keeping 
that tenure talent at Amazon that knows how that crazy place operates. I would say that's kind of number two. And then number three is, is the prospect of organized labor and unionization of the workforce. And Amazon employees, you know, over a million people right now, in a, it, overall hundreds of thousands in its fulfillment centers. We, we saw organized labor with a, I'm not going to say a near miss because they got kind of trounced, but in Bessemer, Alabama. And if we, if we start to see the organized labor movement in the U.S. kind of pick up momentum, that would hit Amazon in a way that it doesn't hit the other big tech companies. Yeah, my sense is that, like everything, well, my sense is unions have been, the best thing you can have is to have a, a weak, incompetent enemy. I don't think unions have been fantastic for corporate America. I think, right. I think they've done a terrible job. But anyways, what, so let's... Uh, Amazon is the largest recruiter of my kids out of my class. When I say kids, I mean the 28-year-olds deciding what they're going to do with their life. And they all come to my office hours and pretend like, I've got enough from Amazon and off from a small company. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, stop fucking wasting my time. You're going to you're going to grunge and bad coffee. You're going to Seattle. They all pretend like they all put themselves through this drama and then they pick the best brand. But anyway, if you think about Amazon's market capitalization now, um, do you think that there's is their biggest uh, big new thing? Do you think it's going to be healthcare? Do you think it's going to be more around uh, uh, media? What do you think is the next kind of quote unquote big, big thing for Amazon? Right. Interesting. Um, there, there's a couple to choose from. You, you selected two of them. I would put supermarkets and, and the opportunity of physical retail into that. Supermarkets. Yeah, they're stamping out these Amazon Fresh stup- supermarkets, yeah. uh, a brand independent from Whole Foods, so yeah. wide selection, no no organic uh, you know, uh, sub-selection. And then they're using the ghost store technology to, um, you know, the cameras in the ceiling and the weights in the shelves to, uh, to uh, allow people to walk out without waiting mm-hmm. in line. Mm-hmm. And whether you think that's a differentiator or not, I, I expect that we're going to start seeing Amazon supermarkets inside every major shopping retail center. Do you think they'll just do acquisition or they'll just build their own? No, well, they made an acquisition with Whole Foods and they're yeah. growing it at, al- alongside it in much the same way that they did with, with Zappos and diapers.com. You know, they, they buy some of these franchises, they learn from them, they allow the, their entrepreneur founders to run them independently, and then Amazon just goes and does what it's going to going to do. So in terms of the sheer, well, they're so, I mean, they're selecting very big markets, right? Healthcare is multiple trillions of dollars, satellite internet access with their, um, their, their constellation of satellites um, to compete with SpaceX's Starlink. It's still on the drawing board, but could be a big opportunity if they ever are able to launch those. And then, and then the opportunity of physical retail, I would put as probably the big three with supermarkets maybe being the nearest and most realistic one. And do you think that they go into, um, I mean, you see, what do you think is the likelihood, I've been talking this for a while and, and, and every year I get it wrong, what do you think is the likelihood that they'll prophylactically spin a unit right. to try and stave off antitrust? I remember, I remember those predictions. I don't, I don't. <laughs> at some point I'll be right, Brad, at some point. 2085, I told you. <laughs> I don't see them doing that in the same way that I don't see Amazon you know, giving it, giving a dividend or buying mm-hmm. back stock. They don't, Bezos doesn't seem to go in for that kind of financial engineering. Mm-hmm. And he gets a lot of benefit. I think some very subtle benefits from having the companies conjoined. So Amazon retail pays wholesale rates for AWS. AWS has 
a first beta customer and that for every new AWS service that it introduces mm-hmm. that brings that service immediately up to scale, which is of course Amazon retail. Alexa is basically a consumer facing application that sits on AWS servers. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's lots of ways in which those, those companies nourish each other and um, you know, they draw from the same talent pool. They have the same cultural norms. And, and look, and there's probably a personal reason too, which is Bezos has empire building and mm-hmm. gets and probably you know draws draws a lot of satisfaction from having all those units conjoined, uh, for having the relationships between them kind of obscured, um, and for dra- drawing a lot of small connections between between the businesses. We'll be right back. Let's talk about the MGM UA, uh, or I guess it's just MGM acquisition. So eight and a half billion dollars. It strikes me that there's a that there was one midlife guy going through a midlife crisis who overpaid for it ten years ago and managed to find another midlife crisis guy to pay more <laughs> for it. Do you think that was a good purchase, or 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 did they overpay? Well, it, it seems like the the market thinks Amazon overpaid, but Amazon, you know, has the has the resources. They can't overpay, right? It, right, can't overpay. Yeah. But here's what I'll say is that I think Amazon, ha, as usual, has a lot of ways to win, a lot mm-hmm. of ways to monetize those assets. So, you know, the biggest reason that they made the acquisition, the stated reason, was to acquire the intellectual property, the James Bond mm-hmm. franchise, the Rocky franchise, Legally Blonde, RoboCop, etc., which they can you know spin in a million different directions. But Amazon also has IMDb TV and a growing advertising business, and they can dump 17,000 hours of MGM TV programming into these streaming services and advertise against it as they're going out mm-hmm. to buy NFL programming and, and Premier League soccer and Major League Baseball. And so there's a growing ad business there. And increasingly, there's Prime, which started as a two-day shipping service and now has gradually moved into this package of content benefits um, mm-hmm. where people pay $119 a year for what they don't know, but it turns them in, into, into big Amazon customers. So they, they have a lot of ways to monetize the asset. Um, and there will be more as MGM kind of gets back some of, the, some of the rights to that content over the years. Um, and, you know, from Amazon's perspective, probably well worth the investment. So I want to I want to switch to Brad Stone. I want to get to know the real Brad Stone. So um, my sense is you have a really interesting career. Uh, you're a reporter at Bloomberg. You write books that do well. And I've always said that uh, writing a book was the the worst paying thing I ever did. And the most uh, important thing I ever did uh, professionally, that it it was really kind of changed the trajectory and, and if you will, my brand. And I get the sense it kind of did the same thing for you. You are a well-respected business or tech reporter, but the everything store kind of, and I felt like it just took you to another level. I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth. Do you think that's a, I'm trying to get to, I think journalists, if they're serious about getting to the next level, I think you got to write a book. Your thoughts? There, that there are different models. And mm-hmm. to some, it's a calling card for larger opportunities in the world of public speaking. 
Mm-hmm. And I did a little bit of that and never found it, you know, for, sort of my forte. There was probably a moment there where I was at the, the, you know, the Hotel Marriott in Toronto getting ready to speak to the Canadian Association of Hardware Makers about mm-hmm. Amazon. I think I, I think I went after you. Exactly. <laughs> I'm making that up, but it was something yeah. like that. And then I thought, you know, what am I, what am I doing? Um, and then, you know, eventually wrote a book about Uber and Airbnb and now, and now the Amazon book. So I'm grateful for the opportunity, but that's kind of what I love. And I think there's a, yeah, that's sort of the, an, another kind of school of thought. And look, this is probably the more unprofitable path, but it's the book writing for the sake of, of book writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, with, with all the accoutrements of it, the, the public speaking um, and et cetera, as being, as being more of a, an obligation than a financial opportunity. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm writing the books because I get, I get weirdly enraptured with a subject and I like to go down the rabbit hole. And when I don't have that, that's when my existential dread kind of creeps in. I, I like having a project. And if you were going to write, well, what is your next book? If you, you've written two on Amazon, what is kind of what I'm, is next? I'm in recovery now. I just need yeah, to like, take some time and and uh, well, I'm still talking about this book quite a bit, and then and then figure out what what's out there that inspires me. You know, I, the mm-hmm. reason I did this was because there was a there was this whole new chapter, a story of transformation of Amazon of Bezos. So you know, if I can find something that's half as interesting. Um, what what generally interests interests me are cha- are changes in transportation and, and new transportation mm-hmm. technologies, and and then any climate. I mean, I know that that's a, a hu- obviously a lot a lot has been written, and and there are many great books about climate change and climate technologies. But that seems to me like an inter- an interesting avenue. Um, if if you could find something really special. Um, Bezos told me at a, at a press conference and I asked him if he was really sanguine about, about, um, climate change and our ability to, to get out of it. And he, he waxed poetically for, for a minute or so about how he thought that we can invent our way out of any box. And mm-hmm. I would like to see that. I would like to see the invention that helps to address the problem of climate change if it exists. All right. Lightning around. First thing, first things that pop in your head, best pieces of media you've consumed recently. This is not, I've already paused too long for the best thing that po- right. has popped into my head. This, I, I get a ton of pleasure from reading the Sunday New York Times. The it, Sunday New York Times. Yeah, I just sit, sit there with a cup of coffee as the kids the are asleep, copy? hard copy, get it every week and just read it cover to cover. And it all, it just feels like a really uh, nourishing weekly ritual. How old are your kids, friend? I have three teenage daughters. So they're, they're sleeping in. Advice to dads of teenage daughters. Enjoy the early years, have fun, and don't take the eye rolls too seriously. Uh, advice on being a good husband. <laughs> <laughs> Did I ask uh, the wrong guy? No, no <laughs> not at all. Advice on being a good husband. Um, leave, your, leave your work in, in the office and in, enjoy your time together. Best piece of advice or a piece of advice that you've held on to that stood the test of time? Stephen Levy, um, the the tech journalist, told me when I was writing my first book, find the straight line. And what he what he meant was real world business stories are messy. Um, things ha- over events overlap. Characters come in, they leave. The facts are messy. Find the straight line. Find the narrative that runs throughout, and and tell the story in the way that your readers are want to consume it. And I feel like I've had that top of mind in every book project I've embarked on, and has helped me quite a bit.
Brad Stone is the senior executive editor for global technology at Bloomberg News and the author of four books, including his latest, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Over the last 10 years, as a writer for Bloomberg Businessweek, he's authored over two dozen cover stories on companies, including Apple, Google, Amazon, SoftBank, Twitter, Facebook, and the Chinese internet juggernauts Didi, Tencent, and Baidu. He's a regular contributor to Bloomberg's technology newsletter, Fully Charged, and to the daily Bloomberg TV news program, Bloomberg Technology, and joins us from his home in the Bay Area. Brad, thanks for your time and stay safe. Thank you, Scott. So I watched the final episode, as many of you did, of Mayor of Easttown, and I was just so moved by it. Uh, and a couple of things struck me. One is that HBO, there's something in the water. There's something really powerful about the culture of HBO. We look at, talk about companies from the outside and we talk about their investments or the capital structure, or the leadership, the CEO, but it's difficult to ascertain uh, what is going on with the culture and also how powerful it is. And that is HBO has clearly maintained a culture where they are able to produce superior product on less money. If you look at the content budget for HBO and the amount of Emmys they win, it's approximately $70 million per Emmy. Or put another way, they basically invest 70 million bucks per Emmy. Amazon, it takes about 300 or 350 million, which means the culture at HBO is consistently able to produce better content for less. They are punching above their weight class. Can that last forever? I don't know, but it's still there. And I think this was a great example. But more than that, more than that, I think this was really a story about what is the most enduring and powerful relationship, and that is the bond between uh, mother and child, in this instance, specifically between mother and son. If you think about the really enduring relationships in your life, the singular relationship, most people will say it's the, the relationship they have with their mother because of the little investments she made every day. The key to success, the key to success for people is a lot of things. It's a, a soup and a chemistry and amalgam of where they're born, uh, their education, how much income their family has, uh, their grit, their opportunities, their hard work, their character. But it's all couched, it's all set against the context of one thing. And that one thing is, do you have someone in your life that is irrationally passionate about your well-being? The distinct of what a jerk you are as a 15-year-old, distinct of being an obnoxious eight-year-old, distinct of letting them down at the age of 22 or not reciprocating a fraction of the love or the affection they have demonstrated for you, they continue to be irrationally passionate about your well-being. That is the secret sauce in success. The secret sauce, in my view, of being a man, of being a man is one figuring out a way to provide the resources and the love and the empathy to show effective, irrational passion for your family's well-being. And then in my view, what it means to be um, a real man or a real woman is when you get to a point in your life where you can show that same irrational passion for the well-being of a child that isn't yours. When I think about my mom, uh, you know, I think about, okay, instinctively, she had no choice. She was just irrationally passionate about my well-being. From the, from the moment I was born, she had no choice. Uh, but I also think about my dad's third wife, my stepmom, Linda. And I think about the fact that she became irrationally passionate around my well-being. I think that's what it means to be a wonderful man or a wonderful woman. And that is you can garner the resources and you collide those resources with the sheer character, the sheer love, the sheer empathy 
to show an irrational passion for someone else's well-being. That's what it means to be a man. That's what it means to be a woman. Are you in a position to, after you're the people closest to you are taking care of you, are you in a position to show or really demonstrate concern for the well-being of someone outside of your family? Our producers are Caroline Shagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our assistant producer. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. By the way, we are on the heels of my other podcast, Pivot. We're coming for your bitch-ass pivot. Anyways, muchas gracias. Thank you for listening to the Prop G Show from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you next week on Monday and Thursday. Well, I feel I want to apologize for uh, to Jeff Bezos. I've been saying I can't believe this guy would be that stupid. It doesn't sound like he was. I so I I need to correct the record. I did not realize that were that there in fact weren't dick pics. I well, thought there and let's were. be clear there there might they might have been exchanging such intimate Something, photos. Yeah. We don't know, but but that is not what Michael Sanchez delivered to the National Enquirer, um, which is just one of the little tiny little. Uh, um, you, you, too good to be true tidbits in this whole sordid saga.